Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report. I'm Vaga Maradian. This podcast version of our interview is brought to you by L3 Technologies. Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report. I'm Vaga Maradian here at RAF Fairford, a Royal Air Force base about 90 miles outside London and home to the Royal International Air Tattoo, world's largest uh, gathering of military uh, leaders, the industries that serve them, as well as aircraft from all around the world. Our coverage here is sponsored by Leonardo DRS, and we're honored to have with us uh, the man, Greg Ulmer, uh, who uh, manages uh, the world's largest uh, and arguably most important uh, combat aircraft program, the F-35. And flying and flying overhead is an F-16, which uh, the F-35 will eventually replace. Uh, Greg's the vice president and general manager of the F-35 program. Greg, uh, congratulations uh, on, on being here again at the air show. Uh, how does it feel to actually be seeing these jets up and flying multiple times a day in a demonstration? It's a very exciting time for us, especially with uh, RAF 100 and we just delivered the first four F-35s here to uh, the UK on uh, June 6th of this year. Um, so it's very it's a very exciting time, as well as um, to have the F-35 here flying in the show as part of the Heritage flight. Very exciting for us. Um, it's, it's very neat. Uh, programs making progress, training pipelines are expanding. Uh, we had a chance to talk to folks at the 56th wing at, at Luke. Uh, Gambit Stevens spent a little bit of time as an instructor pilot there, and he's also with the Heritage flight. Um, Talk to us a little bit uh, about where we are in the program. You guys are negotiating Lot 11, uh, still a lot of price uh, pressure uh, on the program. Uh, you guys are also working availability, uh, you're working readiness, and you're also reducing sustainment cost, or, or working to reduce sustainment cost. And increasingly, we hear from folks, hey, you know, um, you know, about cycles and turnaround times. Bring us up to speed on the negotiations, when we think we're going to have a deal, and then let's also then talk a little bit about sustainment cost reduction. Okay. Well, on uh, the negotiation on 11, we're very, very close to a handshake with the government, so I, I would expect that within 30 days or so that we'll have that handshake, and then we'll have a formal formalization, definitization of that agreement with our customer. From a production point of view, we delivered 66 last year, which was per our plan. This year, we'll deliver 91. We're on track to do that. Next year, about 130 or so as we go forward. And then it goes to 145, 145, with peak in 2023 of about 160 aircraft. And we are positioned to support that rate as we go forward. And then from a development point of view, follow-on modernization, SDD is complete, flight test is complete. We're doing some wrap-up with SDD, think weapons certification, underwriting of those certifications, especially for all the different nations. Um, but we've already started follow-on modernization, and we're really transforming the way we do development on the program. We're trying to implement an agile construct where we do kind of a spiral rapid implementation into the airframe rather than wait for a big bang like we did in SDD. All the airplanes we're delivering today are 3F configured, which is the final configuration relative to the original certification of the airplane. The airplane that you see flying in the show today is a 3F airplane that has that full capability in terms of weapons and envelope, so the customer is extremely pleased with that as well. And then from a sustainment point of view, we're very focused on reducing the operational support costs on the airframe. And so if you look at a dollar spent in sustainment today, about 47% is, or 47 cents is industry. And we're on a trajectory to reduce that just under 40% in the next 10 years or so. So think 2026, we intend to reduce our part of that dollar, that 47 cents, by just about 40%. Uh, and uh, 
You guys also have 9G uh, certified now, so the airplanes, uh, the Air Force, the Alphas, which are designed for 9Gs, are cleared to 9G. Um, from a, a stability standpoint, one of the questions was stability on that 3F software. You guys feel you're perfectly comfortable that you've got the stability on that? Yeah, absolutely. Actually, in first 3I software release, we have that stability, and we didn't just carry it into 3F as well. So the, the platform is extremely stable from a software configuration point of view. And uh, there were some challenges, Alice challenges, you guys feel that totally, totally solved because they were causing some availability issues for the fleet? So we continue to refine Alice as we go forward, especially as we especially as we use it and learn from it in the fleet. And we also have a spiral development approach with Alice as we go forward. So we're implementing um, kind of small increments of improvement to Alice, and we've seen significant improvement in Alice. We don't see any um, aircraft availability associated with Alice performance to date. Um, one of the things you hear from detractors of the program, including whether they're in the department. Uh, one, of the th one of the things you still hear from folks is, um, well, you know, turnaround times aren't as good as we uh, expect them uh, to be, and availability rates aren't as high. From your standpoint, you're dealing with this on a daily basis. Talk to us a little bit about the availability rates uh, and also turnaround times on the jet compared with anything that exists currently in the inventory. Sure. If you look at the latest LRIP deliveries, so think 8, 9, and 10, we're delivering 10 this year. The aircraft availability rates for those later LRIPs, where most of all the improvements are into the airframe at this point, 3F capabilities in the airframe, we're seeing great greater than 60% aircraft availability, and we have some units greater than 70% aircraft availability, which across the United States Air Force fleet is best in class. So we're seeing very strong results. If you look at the fleet average, the, the early LRIPs to today, it's about a 50%, but as the fleet size grows, and we have the, the you know, that increase in rate I talked about, you're going to see more and more of that 3F capability, and you're going to see a significant improvement in aircraft availability across the entire fleet, not just these recently delivered LRIPs as we go forward. So not only are we implementing reliability, maintainability enhancements to the airframe, but the prognostic system on the airplane that manages the health of the airplane, we're continuing to improve that as well. So now we don't have false alarms where we may be pulling an element off the airplane, an LRU or a component. Right. And so that sticks on the airplane, which also helps increase AVA and also reduce maintenance time on the airplane. So all in all, we're seeing a significant improvement across multiple fronts that really help aircraft availability. Um, and uh, what about turnaround time, right? I mean, that's always a question that some folks say, well, some of the older jets had a higher turnaround rate, uh, which could be very, very important and vital, actually, for cyclic operations. From your standpoint, how does the turnaround rate for the 35 as a class compare with anything that's in the inventory today? So with that AVA, with that increase, it to me is turnaround rate, and we are seeing very significantly improved turnaround rates. So, so very similar to current operations, think of an F-15, think of legacy F-16, we're seeing the same kind of turnaround rates for F-35. And uh, let's talk a little bit about unit production costs. I know Chris Bogdan and Admiral Winter. Uh, Chris Bogdan, the, the former uh, program executive officer for F-35, replaced by Vice Admiral uh, Matt uh, Winter, um, have talked about the importance of driving that cost rate, getting it below. Uh, an afterburner is a beautiful thing. Uh, get uh, Once you get it down, uh, you know, just get it down below 80 million. Talk to us about a little bit on what the price track looks like uh, for unit price of this aircraft, which is absolutely key, not just for the leading customer of the United States, but also in order uh, for a lot of the export customers out there. So with LRIP 10 for a CTOL airplane, we're right around 94.3, 94 million. 
Um, and as we go forward, we're on trajectory to get to an $80 million airplane by lot 14, right? And then as we, as we go forward into the airplane, we're going to continue to make investment relative to driving that cost down further as we go. We're going to have to balance that when we bring new capability. What's the cost of that new capability as we insert it on the airplane? And normal escalation, inflation. So we have those things to, to battle constantly. And we'll constantly look at ways to refine how we produce the airplane, how we buy the material, how we'll, do, we'll probably do the first multi-year on the, on the platform, which will really help leverage that price and try to keep it down as we go forward past that $80 million. Um, and talk to us about the new, I, I just want to look, just follow up before we move on to international and then an operational lessons that you're learning from the airplane and feeding into the um, design, sustainment, and, and just the overall model. Um, you talked about being able to roll stuff out uh, faster, right? right? As opposed to doing sort of the big block, how to, you're yeah, inserting stuff. Incremental. I, talk to us about that incremental process because managed right, it's an enabler. Not managed right, it can lead to chaos. Talk to us about the, the way you guys are trying to map this to insert improvements into the line, but do it with a much, you know, I, mean, I, I, I look at a velocity, but I also look at Lockheed as a very disciplined company, but even, even that can tax the best and most disciplined system, right? Right, so think, um, are you familiar with auto GCAS on F-16? So this is an auto ground collision avoidance system on the F-16. It's a legacy software. So we studied that, we did some system, system engineering analysis and said we can do that on the F-35. And we had about a five-year window where we thought we could implement that, but based on our experience on F-16, we've been able to bring that software load into F-35 context, and we're going to accelerate that by about two years and implement that a lot sooner, right? And we'll do it in incremental bits as we go forward. So as we implement Auto GCAS, we, we'll, we'll develop elements of Auto GCAS and we'll insert them in the software, but we won't turn that capability on until it's a complete package, right? And so, but as we bring those elements, we can, we can validate them, certify them, not for use, but we've proven the capability. And then once everything is packaged, we'll release that full capability. And so with that approach, we call it a spiral development or an agile construct development. We can bring those capabilities in bits and pieces. And when we're satisfied that it, in, as a whole entity, it's, it meets the requirement, we'll turn it on and we'll go. So it's a, it's a lot faster um, approach to software development and improvements on the airframe. Um, let's go to the international market, something critical for the airplane, 21, uh, excuse me, 12, uh, 12 nations, uh, dozens more expected to acquire the aircraft over the decades of its service life uh, as it replaces the F-16, F-18, uh, and, and Harrier, uh, and, and the A-10. Um, Denmark, big success, was a partner uh, nation, or uh, and then sort of had a national uh, debate and then decided to go along, uh, go along with the aircraft, um, UK, uh, originally 138, uh, 78, 48 under contract uh, at the moment. Um, talk to us, talk to us a little bit about some of the other opportunities and how potential political challenges. Uh, Germany, Germany, uh, it's very clear you guys were in discussions with Germany on the jet. The Germans discussed that as well. Uh, there were conversations in Canada, particularly after the Bombardier uh, incident where it looked like the F-18 had a little bit of an edge. The F-18 dropped off. Folks were looking at F-35 uh, in Canada. But then some of the statements by the president uh, were not received well in Germany or in, or in Canada. And I've heard both from German sources as well as Canadian sources, hey, you know, this might be something that we may not want to do. Two-part question. First, give us an update on the international order and, and where we're going to see progress, whether it's Belgium or anywhere else, but also how potential high-level political challenges you know, affect your ability 
to do what are national flagship programs that are in the tens of billions of dollars, not sort of the tens of millions that can you yep. can hide on, in a seat cushion. So uh, near-term opportunity, really Belgium, as you mentioned, Germany and Finland. I don't think you mentioned Finland, but we're talking with Finland as well, and then Switzerland beyond that. So we're working with them. You asked a little bit about Canada. Um, so Canada has been a partner on the program since the beginning, a very valued partner, has contributed a lot to the program. So we're going to continue to work with Canada. We're going to participate in the competition to supply F-35s to Canada, and we'll just continue to have that relationship with Canada and work through, through that. From a political perspective, um, we believe performance is, is the king. So we believe the F-35 performance, especially as we've seen it in operation around the world, um, with our customers, we believe that performance will bring those customers to, to value and want to have the F-35. Um, one uh, political challenge is Turkey. There's a debate uh, in uh, Congress, but also in Washington. There isn't a day that doesn't go by that folks aren't talking about Turkey. Uh, and that's been a partner since the inception of the program. Uh, Turkish industry playing a key role on it. And now there's a debate whether the two Turkish jets that are at Luke are actually going to be cleared to be able to go to. Um, uh, uh, and, and those are two Rafals. So, yeah, we, we thought we had noise before. Now we have four afterburning engines instead of one. Um, uh, talk, talk to us a little bit about, you know, obviously it's not a decision you guys are going to make. Right. You're going to support the decision one way or another. But in the event that gets stopped, that could present you with a challenge given Turkish industry is very sophisticated and a key, you know, there's, the, there's an engine uh, service facility that all of European engines are going to be serviced in Turkey. In the event that there is a stoppage there, how does it affect the program? Particularly, how could it affect supply chains that every nation's airplane, you know, every one of these airplanes is an international airplane? Well, the Turkey decision ultimately is government to government, as you alluded to. And we have delivered the first DD-250, the first two Turkey jets there at Luke, and we'll deliver two more Turkey jets next year. Um, in terms of what we're constantly looking at our supply base for all kinds of reasons, political, economical, um, performance, how well a supplier's perform, we're constantly looking at all those different elements of supply, and we're making sure that we have capabilities that if a given element of supply we, need, we have issue with, we can address with that issue. So as industry does, we're constantly looking at how do we protect ourselves for whatever reason, political, economical, performance, and we're going to make sure that we, we protect ourselves relative to that. And But would that be a major disruption to the program should something like that happen or something that you guys will be able to absorb? I think it's too early to decide if it's going to be a significant impact to the program or not. Let me take you. you, you, you mentioned, you alluded, I think, to the DAS uh, decision when you said that uh, 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 suppliers can be on and off. Northrop Grumman uh, was on the program from the very beginning, one of the three largest uh, contract, four largest, uh, lar largest contractors on the program. Uh, obviously, the other one is BAE Systems, uh, yeah, Northrop Grumman, and of course, you have Pratt & Whitney as a key partner on that, and Rolls-Royce for the, for the lift van. Um, the DAS is the, makes the airplane invisible. 360 degree visibility from the pilot, a, a massive enabling technology, uh, and yet nor you guys have taken the extraordinary step to drop Northrop as a supplier, pick Raytheon up. So two part question, first, what were some of the specific issues that brought you to that point? The second thing is, uh, you know, does, does Northrop have a way to get back in on this at some point? Because my understanding was that that was a no bid against Raytheon, so basically Raytheon had the field open to them. But the last question is, um, you know, is this going to cause a perturbation given that that whatever its challenges was a component that's going on and is in build uh, and Northrop's going to be building them for a while before Raytheon comes on and there's always a, a question there about whether or not everything is, is going to stay on track there. So address that whole 
okay. challenge an issue for really, the Really, when we look at um, suppliers on the airframe, we're looking at best value for the program, right? So we look at cost, we look at performance, and really, from a DAS perspective, we felt, from a cost point of view, that the DAS, we could do, if we look across industry and see what kind of capability is out there today relative to when we first um, selected the DAS supplier, that we thought there was opportunity from a cost perspective. We also thought there was a performance um, improvement. And in fact, when we when we bid and we got we sent out our RFI to industry, we, we found that to be true. And so we have a significant cost savings on the program on the order of about $3.3 over the life of the program from an initial procurement to sustainment point of view, so a significant savings. But from a performance point of view, it's it has two times better improvement in terms of actual capability, five times improvement relative to reliability and maintainability. And you're going to ask me, well, how do you know that to be true? Because, and I know that because many of the components within the new DAS are already out in different fleets and in different usages. So we have the reliability, we have the maintainability numbers for those components. And so we have a high confidence relative to that five times improvement in terms of reliability. And so that's really, when we, when we make those kinds of assessments all the time, we're looking at the cost, we're looking at capability, and we're looking at performance. And is there, um is there an opportunity for Northrop to get back on the program? Uh, have you discussed it with them? And then secondarily, are you concerned that there might be uh, you know, performance issues for a contractor that knows, hey look, I'm not going to be on this past X. Uh, you know, interest perhaps could, could flag on that. You know, are they going to be able to deliver or are there going to be more costs as you bring the new system on? Well, in the future, as we seek best value for the platform, we're always going to submit RFIs to all of industry. So, so they have the ability to, to stay on the program or compete in the future relative to potential opportunity. Either maybe the future DAS of the future or whatever components in the future may, maybe we may be looking at refreshing on the airframe. And, uh, and so no cost challenge on that from your standpoint in terms of bringing the new guy on? Cost challenge in what way? What, that you're bringing a new supplier on. You're not concerned that that's going to increase your cost at all? No, when right there. I think it's going to go the other way, and that contributes to that 3.3 million savings. Um, and I'm getting the hook here, you're getting the hook. Let me ask you one last question, which is operational lessons learned. Um, the jet has seen its first uh, combat debut. Uh, Marine Corps jets are out on Essex at sea. Talk to us on how some of those lessons are feeding back into the program all the time. Uh, Israel obviously used it in a, in a highly sensitive air environment like Syria. Uh, F-22, obviously another Lockheed product's been operating in that, in that area as well. Talk to us a little bit about how you're inserting operational lessons into the program to keep steadily improving it in this spiral process you guys have created. That's really a customer kind of question. You need to ask the, the operating customer relative to their performance. But obviously the customer base is going to be sharing operational lessons learned and as appropriate industry and be included in that discussion to see if we can't either refine the current um, construct of the program, the architecture of the program, um, and take the lessons learned from those operational insights. Um, the F-35 is a new, it's operationally new. And one of the things from my past is we have a tendency to try to apply legacy platform thinking on new product. And so we're learning as F-35 is operated that there's ways we're going to operate this that we never even envisioned in the past, and we're going to we're going to really take and leverage that as we go forward. As the customers use it, they're going to learn that there's all kinds of new ways that we can operate this platform never envisioned, and we'll we'll take that and we'll opportunize that relative to the airplane going forward. And and you think that those benefits are going to outweigh whether they're political concern? And you think those kind of benefits will outweigh political concerns?
And you think that production numbers are not going to slow down, as some expect, but actually accelerate? Well, I think as we get to that $80 million cost, right, and we refine that modernization and we make it really rapid and agile, and then we reduce that sustainment cost by, let's say, 40%, that's going to do a lot relative to making us an equivalent of an F-35 at a fourth-gen price, both from a production perspective and a sustainment perspective. Um, and I think from that operational, you know, the, the customer you were alluding to relative to the, their operation, their words are, it's magic. And that was their quote, right? I mean, so this airplane's performing, I think, beyond their expectations. Greg Ulmer, Vice President and General Manager of the F-35 program at Lockheed Martin. Sir, thanks so much. Thank you.